guys this evening. Uh, the last couple of days we've heard legends of church night, uh, so we're so glad uh, just to be able to experience this with you all. Excited to open God's word with you. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to the book of James. The book of James is where we're going to be camping out this evening, chapter 2 specifically, uh, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 26 of chapter 2. And so as we come to the word Together, let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this faithful church, this gathering of believers. Lord, we thank you that um, we not only get the encouragement of getting to sing praises to you and seeing people baptized and taking the supper together, Lord, but we get the encouragement of hearing from you. So Father, I pray that these would not be my words, but they'd be words from you, they'd be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, growing up, I had gigantic hoop dreams of making it to the NBA someday. I was pretty good in middle school, and I just thought, you know, what's stopping me from making it all the way? By the time I got to high school, I was still only about six feet tall. I was still only around the category of pretty good, uh, and I soon realized I had absolutely no chance of making it to the big leagues uh, or even to playing overseas. However, to this day, my basketball career does continue. It's, uh, it's in a much less lucrative way, uh, but still just as serious context known as pickup basketball. When you're playing basketball with guys at the gym or at the park, there are obviously no referees out there. And so it's kind of a call-your-own-fouls scenario, meaning that if you think you get fouled or if someone else thinks they got fouled or, or if you pretty obviously fouled somebody, you just go ahead and say so. But because call-your-own-fouls can actually be pretty subjective, sometimes people will get into rather contentious and heated arguments about whether or not that play actually was a foul, whether or not it was an and-one or an all-ball. Now, this is where the beautiful pickup basketball phrase of ball-don't-lie comes in. After the argument and about a particular play kind of cools down, someone will shout, ball-don't-lie, meaning that the person who thinks it was a foul is going to have to shoot a shot. And if they make it, it apparently means that the supernatural forces of pickup basketball are agreeing with this player <laughs> that they indeed were right in their assessment about the foul. And if they miss it, they were apparently wrong because the rules of the basketball universe are that ball don't lie. And believe it or not, this concept from pickup basketball actually relates to the Christian life. Let me tell you how. You see, James, in this letter so far, has been writing to Christians who are in the dispersion. They're being persecuted. They're facing many trials. And the whole point of his letter thus far, up until chapter 2, is that true faith works. In other words, James is saying that true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is inevitably going to lead to good works. Anybody can simply say that they believe in Jesus, just like anybody can simply say that they were fouled. But just like on the basketball court, in the Christian life, our works don't lie. Our works, what, our works actually reveal what is true in our hearts and what is true coming from our mouths. So in our passage today, in chapter 2, James is addressing particular people in the church who think that they can actually separate their faith from their works. He's essentially taking them to task because they think they can have their cake and eat it too. 
They think they can call a foul without actually backing it up with anything. And James is calling their bluff, so to speak, and shouting at them, works don't lie. So James is going to systematically break down their belief system in three parts in our verses this evening. First, he's going to give us the relationship between faith and works in verses 14 through 17. Second, he's going to deal with an objection to faith and works in verses 18 and 19. And third and finally, he's going to illustrate faith and works for us in verses 20 through 26. So let's read this text together. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. This is God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. So first, as I mentioned, the relationship of faith and works in verses 14 through 17. We all intuitively understand that someone can have great deeds without having any faith in Jesus whatsoever. So think about a doctor for a second. Every day they're performing good deeds of helping people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's fairly easy for us to understand that simply having good deeds in life does not make you a Christian. At the very least, there must be a component of professing faith in Jesus to be saved. But perhaps the trickier conundrum to deal with would be this. What do we do with people who profess faith in Jesus, but don't actually live like it? Simply people that say that they're Christians, should we just take them at their word? Does salvation mean that all you have to do is pray a prayer Say the right words, and then no matter how you sin, you're going to get a get-out-of-hell-free card and get to spend eternity with God? Well, James actually asked this exact question here in verse 14, when he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So James here is not asking if true faith in Jesus Christ can save people. That's a presupposition he's working with. Of course, true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can save But what James wants to ask is whether there are certain kinds of faith that don't actually save. Have you ever heard someone ask a question, but in reality they're they're making a statement? Like when Tess asks me, 
Can we take out the trash and recycling later? These four years of marriage have taught me so much marital wisdom. And I've learned that that's not actually a question. It's a statement. Cade, take out the trash and recycling later. In the same kind of way, James is asking this rhetorical question, can faith in Jesus without good works save? And the answer is an obvious implied no. And why is this? Because professed faith without good works proves that it's not actually real, true, saving faith that James is so intent to define and crystallize in his letter. On the flip side of things, the kind of faith that actually produces the fruit of good works is the only kind of faith that saves. And look at the example that James gives us down in verses 15 and 16. He says, if you just tell someone in your church, a brother or sister, well wishes, but don't actually do anything for them, what good is that? It's sort of like when someone says to someone else in tragedy, thoughts be with you. To the suffering person, it's kind of like, wow, thank you so much for your thoughts. I just feel those thoughts just emanating right onto me and just helping me out in this suffering. No, right? That's We all understand that's not actually helpful, that maybe this person would be really grateful if you prayed for them. And what might even be even better than this is bringing them a meal or helping them with their kids or helping them out financially in some practical way. And so James is saying something by his question here. What good is that? He's saying your well wishes without any tangible acts of service and love are worthless. And then in verse 17, he really puts the exclamation point on it by saying, faith by itself without works is dead. And this is where it gets a little tricky. You might have good little theological alarm bells going off in your mind alerting you to the fact that James or I may be teaching you salvation by works. And if you look ahead to verse 24 in our passage, you might even be more theologically concerned. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now some evidently would take issue with James here because it seems to contradict the Apostle Paul's teaching, does it not? I'm sure that many of you could quote verses to me right this moment where Paul clearly says that we are justified by faith alone and not by works of the law. And this is one of the five solas of the Reformation, right? We are justified by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, right? So how do these truths in our passage fit together with those other truths that we know and hold dear? Well, one author helpfully puts it this way. He says, We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. In other words, all we need to do to be saved is to put our faith in Christ alone. This is the basis by which God justifies us in his sight and declares us to be blood-bought, righteous, holy, forgiven in him. But, but, the nature of true faith in Christ is that it is always and inevitably accompanied by good works. Another way of putting this would be for the Lord of the Rings fans in the room. Frodo says, I'm going to Mordor alone. And Sam replies, of course you are, and I'm coming with you. So Frodo and Sam's interaction here ends up being very similar to the relationship of faith and works in the Christian life. 
And if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, if that doesn't work for you, Han Solo would not be Han Solo without Chewbacca. Or if that's still flying over your head, Shrek would not have made it very far without Donkey. (laughs) Works must be present to be saved, not as the grounds of our salvation, but as an inevitable outcome of our faith. And for us today, these truths remain the same. The relationship of faith and works is no different today than it was in James's day. So that's the relationship of faith and works. But second, in verses 18 and 19, we have the objection to faith and works. So James is anticipating that his hearers are going to take issue with all of this. This might actually be one of the reasons that he's writing to them in the first place. This may have been an objection that he's already heard from them in person or through letter. And here's what the objection is if you look down at verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James is quick on the draw here. He has his response ready. He shoots right back, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he gets real up close and personal. In verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James is now coming hard after the people who want to say that it's possible to separate their faith and their works. He's saying, you believe in God? Good for you. Any old Joe Schmo can believe in God. Congratulations on believing in God. You get a gold star. But James says, Remember those demons in Jesus' day who knew that Jesus was the Son of God before even the disciples and the crowds did? Yeah, they, those demons technically believed. And how are their salvation prospects looking? So clearly James is teaching that, that mere belief in God does not equal the true and saving faith. Sure, belief is one element of true faith, but saying that belief is the whole kit and caboodle would be like plopping a piece of meat on my dinner plate and saying, here you go, eat your burger. As a burger-loving extraordinaire, I'm going to say, this is not a burger. A burger to be a burger needs, at the very least, to have a bun, right? <laughs> not to mention, ideally, it would have cheese and bacon and lettuce and ketchup, and if I'm extremely lucky, caramelized onions and a fried egg. James is saying here, there's a difference between a piece of meat and a burger. Similarly, there is a difference between simply believing in God and possessing true faith in Him. True faith, of course, includes belief, but it should also include entrusting ourselves to Him, embracing Him as our God, and seeing progressive growth over time in good works. But why is James telling this? Why is James sharing this with them? Is he just sort of splicing theological hairs? What is the purpose of him making this fine distinction? Well, for one, James loves these churches, and he loves them way too much to let them walk in error. Because no matter how fine of a distinction this may seem to you, bad theology is always going to harm people. So James is rebuking and correcting these believers' wrong-headed theology to get them back on the right track. And when we think about the Apostle Paul, 
and how sometimes Paul and James sound really different, that's ultimately because they're fighting different battles and have different enemies all together. A lot of times when you read Paul's letters, he's fighting against legalism. He's fighting against the Judaizers saying that these Christians need to keep the works of the old covenant law in order to be saved. And so Paul comes in and he's saying, no, 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 works of the law. This is not what saves you. You are justified by faith alone in Christ alone and not by works. So don't listen to those legalists who want to put you back under the law. But on the other side of the coin, James is battling against a kind of antinomianism, which is a kind of lawlessness that says that you can believe in Jesus, and it doesn't really matter how you live, because in the end, you get to go to heaven as long as you just believe. And James, like Paul, is saying, no, 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 this is not true faith. So contrary to what some may say, Paul and James actually turn out to be friends that are standing back to back, fighting different battles and different enemies. So of course they're not going to sound the same. So we've seen the relationship of faith and works, the objection to faith and works, and third and lastly, the illustrations of faith and works. In verse 20, he he continues this tone of really going after them by saying, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James is basically saying here, all right, if you guys are not yet convinced of how faith and works go together, if it's not enough for me to just simply tell you about faith and works, fine, I will just show you. He's like, okay, church in dispersion, come along on a journey with me in a time machine all the way back to Genesis chapter 22. Remember Abraham, your forefather, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Abraham was perhaps the most respected man of faith in their history. Abraham was the one who left his homeland and his country to follow God to who knows where. He was the one that God said he was going to bless, give him a land, give him a bunch of kids, give him a spiritual blessing. And he was the one who still had faith faith in God in the midst of his childlessness all the way up to his 100th birthday party. And then... He was the one when God asked him to go up on the mountain with his one and only beloved son, did it with no ifs, ands, or buts about it. No questions asked from Abraham. If anyone ever had faith, it was Abraham. And James says, Abraham the faithful didn't only have mere belief. His faith in God led him to do good works. And because he believed God, that was shown through his actions. Look again down at verse 22. James says, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. But if Abraham doesn't yet convince you, I'll do you one better, says James. Down in verse 25, James turns to another example. If on one end of the spectrum you have one of the most respected Jews ever, the father of the Jewish nation, on the complete other side, here's Rahab, Rahab the prostitute. If Abraham had everything going for him, Rahab had nothing going for her. First of all, she's a Gentile, 
So clearly not a part of their understanding of God's Old Testament covenant people. Second, she's a prostitute, which in this day is still considered an especially heinous sin. And thirdly, she's a woman, which back in this day would not have been as societally or culturally esteemed. James could not have picked a more polar opposite example from Abraham than Rahab. In fact, it might have even been cringeworthy for some of these Jews to read about here. But yes, Rahab, that one, the prostitute. Remember her from Joshua chapter 2? Yes, she was justified by faith. She is in the kingdom, but her faith was not alone that justified her. Look at her works as she welcomed the spies into the land. Her faith in Yahweh was accompanied by good works. And James only picked these two examples of Abraham and Rahab, but he could have easily kept going. Think about in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith hall of fame. James could have spoken about how Abel, by faith, offered a better sacrifice. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings. By faith, Moses left Egypt. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. So do you see, dear Christian, how faith in Jesus Christ always involves good works? And then James closes up chapter 2 with a stunning image. He says, just like if you separate body and spirit, you get a corpse. In the same way, if you separate faith and works, all you have is a spiritual corpse. The person that only has belief but not works, or the person that has works but no faith, that person is spiritually dead. So as Christians here this evening, we can all remember being spiritually dead. You can remember being separated from the Lord, separated from His people, from His love, from His covenant, from His grace. And even as you think back and remember in your own life, your own spiritual deadness, you can probably think of people right now that you know, maybe family members or friends or coworkers or neighbors that you know right now who are spiritually dead and still in their sins. Pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul was saved by hearing one verse from the Bible. You know what verse that was? Ecclesiastes 11.3, which says this, If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Sproul heard that verse as a young man, and it made him think ahead to his someday cold and dead body that would be lying there like a fallen tree. And it really exposed him to the fact that this is not only true for him in a physical sense, that his physical death was coming and was someday inevitable, but it also gave him a picture of his spiritual deadness apart from Christ. For those who are outside of Christ today, this is them spiritually. They might be walking around, living their lives, but in actuality, they're spiritually dead inside. Maybe that person that you're thinking of in your mind, maybe you know the person who, like in verse 18, says, yeah, all you guys, you guys have all the faith, but, but I just have my works. And maybe they're actually really good at, at loving and serving those around you, or even you, but they haven't yet given themselves over to Christ. Or on the flip side, you may know someone who says that they have faith, and their works actually out them to the fact 
that they are a spiritual corpse. But either way you slice it, the spiritually dead are living on borrowed time. There will come a day when they die. And if they stay in their spiritually dead condition, then they not only have to face physical death, but spiritual death as well. We all understand and can relate to just how terrible physical death is. Just recently I heard a tragic story of a young one-year-old playing in the backyard, falls into a pond, and tragically his parents had to come find the corpse. And we have visceral reactions to these types of stories because we know just how horrible physical death is. But friends, how much more terrible is spiritual death? Spiritual death looks like being separated eternally from anything good that you have ever experienced. In Noah's day, it looked like the rainwaters falling and rising and being outside the ark and banging on the door for them to let you in. In Lot's day, spiritual death looks like living your life until fire and sulfur come down from heaven onto the city of Sodom. In Pharaoh's day, it looks like having every single firstborn child in your house dead. Jesus says spiritual death looks like crying out for the mountains to fall down on you. And as they come crashing down on you, you have nowhere to go, nowhere to run or hide or escape forever. Jesus says it feels like weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what I'm talking about is a real place called hell. We don't know all the exact details of what this spiritual death looks like, but what we do know from the Word of God is that it will be a place of eternal, conscious torment, and that is spiritual death in its final form. And this is the place that all of us here tonight deserve to go because of our sin, by our sinful disobedience to the Creator of the universe, the holy and eternal God, we have earned nothing but separation from Him forever in hell. We are due these wages. You see, the good news of the gospel is not that we are all pretty good church people who have the perfect faith in God and aren't we all so great because of our many works. No. All of us, apart from Christ, are spiritually dead in our sins. All of us were on our way to hell. This is where the good news of the gospel and ultimately the good news of Christmas comes in as well. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, from all eternity, chose to become a man. He chose to become 100% God and 100% man by taking on human flesh, by being born as a baby. And not only just be lighting to the cross from there, but actually living a life of 100% obedience to the Father at all times in every way for 33 years. And as Ed spoke about this morning, he not only was the great high priest, he himself was the sacrifice. He went to the cross. He bore on his back his people's sins. And he took on the punishment that we all deserve. He went through an unimaginable hell on the cross, not only suffering in terms of physically, but the Father's wrath actually being poured out upon him in full force and fury. But friends, Jesus went through this valley of the shadow of death 
and came out on the other side for you and for me that we too could be risen to new life with Him. He rose from the grave. He didn't stay dead, but conquered it for those who would put our faith in Him. Amen? Amen. And do you know why Jesus did this? So that we wouldn't have to experience it. He did this so that we could turn from ourselves, turn from our selfishness and our pride and our lust and our inconsistency and turn to Him and receive His perfect sacrifice and His perfect righteousness. He did this to bring us to God. He did this so we could enjoy full forgiveness and eternal life with Him and He did it for His own glory. Amen. So friend, you do not have to clean yourself up first to come to God and receive His grace. You don't have to first show the Lord your your list of good works and your list of good intentions and resolutions. All you have to do is come to Him and receive. But here's the catch. When you come to Him, you love Him. When you come to Him, you treasure Him. When you come to Him, your heart becomes melted by His love and by His grace and forgiveness in the gospel. And our hearts actually become transformed to actually want to obey Him. And that is where our good works come in, right? So for Christians in the room who have already been brought from this spiritual death to this spiritual life, sometimes we're tempted to think about works like this. Works equal bad. Works equal curse. Works equals legalism. What we really need is gospel. But I think James challenges us a little bit on this. And the author of Hebrews ultimately would agree with James. You flip back a couple of pages, Hebrews chapter 10. Ed read this morning from verses 19 through 22. Look ahead to verses 23 through 25 of chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I'm sure you know that the Apostle Paul agrees as well. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what we learn by looking at James and looking at Paul is that if we look at our works through the eyes of can I do enough good works for them to save my soul, then yes, works indeed are your enemy. But if you look at works through a genuinely converted heart, through the eyes of faith in Christ, works become your friend. Works become a pathway to freedom and fullness of life and joy in the Lord and fruit of the Spirit. So dear believer, are you living in friendship with the Lord as Abraham and Rahab did? If God were to call you to do something that seemed absolutely crazy to the world around you, would you be willing to let your life look insane? But how about one that's a little less crazy? What is your gear in terms of loving the brothers and sisters in this church? Are you like the person in verse 16 saying to your brothers and sisters in need, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but not actually doing anything for them? 
Is church just sort of a side thing for you that you can fit into the margins of your life? Are you living here like these brothers and sisters are your family? Or maybe sort of like some third cousins or something. Are you jumping in on needs and service opportunities here in the church? Are you looking for ways to disciple and to encourage and build up those around you? Are you quick to grumble if someone asks you to babysit or serve in children's ministry? Friends, if you're obeying in these areas, praise the Lord. And that should bring you great comfort and strength and assurance, not in yourself, but in the sanctifying work of the Lord's Spirit in your life. And by God's grace, let's strive to do so more and more. And if you're not walking in obedience, I don't mean to sit up here and heap shame on you, but the Lord loves you too much for you to stay in that place. As Robert Murray McShane says, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And by looking at our Savior together and seeing how Jesus' words and deeds always went together and knowing that Jesus doesn't condemn us but actually bore our shame on the cross, these things are going to stoke our flames to live for Him. So friends, I hope you don't hear me saying, be a good person, try harder, do better. Let's get out there and produce some good works and then maybe God will love us in the end. No, no. What I do hope you hear tonight from James and from the Holy Spirit, and from me, is that true faith and good works are inextricably linked. Because just like the rules of the basketball universe, that ball don't lie, the rules of our real universe are that on that final day of judgment, our works won't lie. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the book of James. We thank you that it is in the canon, that it is... Your word, your holy word, your word is truth. And we pray tonight, Lord, that you would sanctify us in this word. I pray, Lord, that we would strive to live in accordance with our professed faith. And that if anyone here tonight does not know you, Lord, that they indeed would come to know you by faith. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this celebration. We pray that you'd bless the rest of this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.